the Cocoa Crew Podcast is hosted by Cyber Ears. If you are serious about your podcast hosting needs, you should check out Cyber Ears. Whether you are a podcaster, a radio host, a musician, a narrator, an audiobook author, or simply a school, church, corporation, or anyone else with an audio recording that needs to be hosted or distributed, you should check out CyberEars.com. Unlimited bandwidth, fast, reliable, and rugged servers with no hidden fees. CyberEars, your audio, your terms. Listen, it's getting closer. Hey, you got your Coco 3 yet? A delicious adventure into the world of retrocomputing news and information featuring the Tandy Color Computer. All right, well, welcome to episode one of the Coco Crew podcast. Uh, this is John Linville, and I'm joined by uh, Neil Blanchard. Hello. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's got to be edited. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, all right, so this is episode one. Um, we're serious. We're really mean to have an actual podcast and not just a one-time thing. We've got uh, some pretty good feedback from uh, the Coco community, and uh, uh, we've enjoyed doing a podcast, and uh, it's a great way for, well, just for Neil and I to get together and uh, uh, talk a bit about things. We're going to cover some news and uh try to cover uh, a little more expanded information in depth from each of us and uh, we're gonna make a make a podcast of it uh, Neil how you doing uh, doing good I really enjoyed the uh, feedback that we got from everybody and uh, 300 uh, was a 300 downloads uh, well yeah I was gonna get into that in just a second with the announcements but but yeah we had a pretty uh, successful introduction i think uh, we had about uh, when the first two days of the podcast we had about 200 downloads uh, which i think is phenomenal that is um by the end of the first week we had 300 uh last time i checked we were at 371 so it's leveled off a little bit i guess that's to be expected and uh like i said i'm really pleased with the reception so far yeah so am i Let's see, we uh, just checking now, we're at 375. So uh, hopefully we'll get a new episode out there and uh, get our audience expanded a bit. Uh, we are getting some organizational stuff in place now. We uh, have a Facebook page, which created just in time for uh, the initial release. We were starting to get a little traffic there and a number of members have joined. We're also available on iTunes and on Stitcher. If you are interested in, uh, or if that's how you get your podcast, I'd appreciate you going to the iTunes uh, uh, listing for us and, and Stitcher listings and write some positive reviews or, well, write the reviews and hopefully they'll be positive. <laughs> <laughs> I did set up, uh, we, we have some domains uh, set up now. Uh, we uh, prefer that you use uh, cococrew.org 
C-O-C-O-C-R-E-W.org. You can also use CocoCrew.net if you get confused. Unfortunately, CocoCrew.com uh, is being squatted upon. <laughs> uh, for those of you who have ever uh, tried to register domains on the Internet, uh, this happens sometimes, and, and I think I may have inadvertently triggered that by doing a search for CocoCrew.com, which was available and I didn't jump on it right then, and I think some people monitor those searches and, and then opportunistically steal domains. Uh, oh. So I don't I don't know if uh, this person is thinking that um, Conan O'Brien uh, was uh, trying to get a new website. I think he, uh, his fans call themselves Coco fans or something. <laughs> anyway, so CocoCrew.com is out, but we prefer that you use CocoCrew.org. But you never know. We might be able to get CocoCrew... Uh... A year from now, and it expires. You just and that's never... right. Eventually, he'll get tired of asking for sixteen hundred dollars, uh, which I think is what uh, he was asking for, <laughs> which is a bit more than the budget for this podcast. Uh, oh no! It says right now, save one hundred dollars a day, two thousand one hundred ninety-five dollars. Wow! Um, no, thank you. <laughs> we'll, we'll wait um, a year. Anyway, so we are CocoCrew.org. Uh, we have some email addresses if you want to send us an uh, email to the show. Uh, of course, you can reach us uh, individually as John at CocoCrew.org or Neil at CocoCrew.org. And then if you want to reach the show, uh, I set up, uh, we've got show at CocoCrew.org, podcast at CocoCrew.org, and of course, feedback at CocoCrew.org. Um, use whichever one you like. And... Uh, one other thing I had under announcements, uh, we actually got plugged uh, on episode 13 of the Player Missile podcast. Rob was kind enough to mention our podcast, said he was uh, looking forward to uh, learning about the Tandy Color Computer, specifically mentioned some technical info, so I hope to provide uh, s uh, some information that I hope uh, Rob and other listeners will uh, find interesting in this podcast, this episode, and, and some future episodes. Uh, anyway, Rob had trouble finding your name, or your last name, so I'm just going to go with Rob. Rob, thanks for the plug, and I uh, hope you enjoy this episode and, and uh, our future episodes. Uh, Rob's podcast is about uh, Atari 8-bit computers. Uh, he goes into some uh, reasonably deep technical information about uh, how you program uh, the custom chips on the 8 bits, uh, the Atari 8 bit, including Antic uh, in particular, which controls the graphic modes. I'm sure he's mentioned uh, Pokey and uh, you know, any other chips uh, of interest there. Plus, uh, he goes into some level of analysis of how some Atari 8 bit games uh, are programmed. Anyway, it's a good podcast. If you're interested in uh, retro computing, especially at a technical level, uh, you definitely should check it out. So, again, Rob, thanks for the plug. All right, Neil, you ready uh, for some news? Uh, definitely. There's a lot of projects going on. Yeah, uh, we were talking a, a little bit before uh, recording here about uh, it's surprising uh, in just a month's time how many news line items we were able to come up with. Amazing, uh, you know, even during the summertime, like, you know, you wouldn't think there'd be uh, this much uh, going on, which is great to see. Yeah, some cool stuff. Anyway, uh, so I'm going to go through a few items here. Boise Pete uh, has announced a new project, calls it uh, Coco RX, and RX like what they put on a pharmacy. I don't know if he's pronouncing that uh, uh, Coco Doc or, or Coco Prescription or, or whatever. <laughs> I think maybe Coco Doc. Um, anyway, uh, it's uh, 
that's a diagnostic uh, program he's working on? That's right. He's, uh, uh, of course, he's taking a bit of a stone soup approach. Uh, he kind of put out uh, the framework for a project, uh, asking for contributions. Um, I checked a couple of days ago. Uh, looked like the, he was getting some contributions from uh, uh, Simon Jonason, uh, Robert Galt, um, maybe a few others. Uh, so hopefully that's going to result in a nice uh, diagnostic package for the Coco. Uh, it's intended to run as a program pack, carry around with you, and when you come across a Coco to buy, pop it in and uh, run some tests. Uh, check it out. It sounds like it's going to be a lot more advanced from the uh, the original diagnostic cartridge that you can get back in the uh, early 80s. Uh, yeah, I hope so. I haven't followed the code a lot so far, but it is out there on GitHub. Uh, we'll include a link for that uh, in the show notes. Another project that's been announced is from someone who's uh, I've never seen on the list before. So um, maybe he's a newcomer or maybe he's just uh, surfaced out of stealth, no- stealth mode. He uh, seems to be a, a French fellow by the name of uh, Pierre uh, Sarazen. I'm uh, not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I- anyway, he's um, got a uh, what he describes as a Crazy Eights-like card game. I'm not sure. I never really played Crazy Eights uh, since I was a child, at least, and so I'm not really sure how this differs. Um, but uh, it looks like he's got a working game there, and it looks like uh, uh, some fun to be had. Uh, the part I thought was the most interesting is that he is um, using a tool he's developed that uh, he calls a CMOC. I'm not sure exactly what that acronym is for, but uh, it is a compiler for a C-like language, and it uh, generates uh, uh, 6809 assembly code. Uh, looks like it uses um, uh, the, yeah, the Frank Frankenstein assembler as uh, his original target. He's got a pretty nice uh, web page describing uh, the tool, and uh, he has it available under uh, GPL version 3, so it's open source. He's constantly updating the, uh, the software as well. There's uh, different yeah. versions. Yep, he's done a lot of updates. Um, he actually has some links uh, to one or two other projects he's done uh, using that compiler. So maybe this is going to grow to be a useful tool for the community to develop software. So that's great. Pierre, welcome to the community. And I hope to continue to see uh, great things from you. Also has an announcement from um, Barry Nelson, uh, someone else that I've not really familiar with. Uh, I don't know how long he's been a part of the community. Are you familiar with Barry, uh, Neil? No, I am not, actually. It kind of came as a surprise, uh, this utility package. It uh, just yeah. came out of the blue, which was great to see. So a project that's uh, arrived over the past year or two has uh, become popular in the community. is the. Uh, it's called the Coco SDC, which is a it's, it's basically a floppy controller emulator that then that's writes right. out to uh, SD cards. And... Originally, it's just conceived as a way to put uh, floppy images onto an SD card and then uh, run them on your Coco. And it's an, like I said, it emulates the floppy drive. So theoretically, even copy protected or, or uh, games uh, that drive the floppy controller themselves, uh, rather than uh, using standard DOS uh, ROM commands or whatever, can still work with this uh, with the Coco SDC. But anyway, not long after it was introduced, people started to figure out, well, yeah, you can do that, but uh, 
with a few extensions, you can actually uh, just put bigger images on there and use it as a hard drive uh, as yeah, well. That's excellent. There's so many uses for that uh, controller. And so Barry apparently has written a set of utilities that run in OS 9 for generating these uh, larger drive images and manipulating them and that sort of thing. Again, it looks like a cool project. I haven't had an opportunity to mess with it much. I'm not a huge OS 9 person, but it looks pretty cool. Uh, he published a Dropbox link for his for downloading his uh, utility. We'll include that in the show notes as well. Moving on, a fairly recent product from the from our friends at Cloud9 called the Mini Flash uh, is a Cocoa program pack with the flash storage in it uh, designed for storing, uh, I think it st will store four uh, flash uh, or four ROM images in its flash and you can select between them. Uh, so you burn your favorite ROM image out to it and you can boot up into it uh, like it was an original cartridge. And, you know, it's a great little tool, variety of uses. And so by default, I think it comes with, uh, well, it, it was coming with HDV DOS so that you could boot up to a drive wire. That's right. Yeah, I think it had uh, uh, different versions, too, for the Coco 1, 2, and 3, the different speeds. That's probably true. Um, but I, Mark had remarked to me that uh, um, he only had a couple of images that he was shipping, uh, and there's four slots. And so I uh, offered to uh, let him include... Uh, images of a couple of games that I developed for, for Coco Fest. Um, one's called uh, Coco Doku, which is, well, it's more of a, a utility in some ways for, for solving uh, Sudoku, uh, Sud Sudoku, <laughs> however you pronounce it. <laughs> that weird little number uh, uh, crossword in Japan. Anyway, Coco Doku is a, a utility for solving those. And also I have a Follow Coco, which is a, essentially a clone of the old Simon game from the 80s. Yeah, that's uh, a great game, by the way. <laughs> it is fun. It is. Uh, it's a nice uh, little way to pass some time. Uh, anyway, I provided those uh, to Mark to, to uh, include with his uh, mini flash when, when he sells them. And he's, uh, if he's not already uh, including them uh, in the, you know, pre-burnt into the flash, uh, he soon will be. Uh, so be sure to visit Cloud9 if you are interested in having a flash-based program pack. Okay, so we mentioned Glenside Color Computer Club, people who sponsor CocoFest every year. Along with that, they also do a, a quarterly newsletter that is sent out. Uh, uh, it's made available as a PDF and mail them out at least part of the time. I'm not sure if they always mail them out, but they do mail them out sometimes. Anyway, the uh, latest one has been released through the efforts uh, primarily, I think, of John Mark Mobley and the rest of uh, Glenside crew there. If you haven't seen it, uh, please check it out. We'll include a link for that in the show notes as well. It's a good way to uh, – it's another good source of information about uh, what is happening in the uh, Coco community. Let's see. So, Neil, do you know how to pronounce Jim, Jim's last name? Jim O'Keefe? No, no, Jim, the, the next line item here, Jim. Jim uh, Jerry, I thought it was. Jim Jerry. G-E-R-R-I-E, -E, uh, is uh, someone we see in the Cocoa community. I think he's primarily uh, uh, an MC10 person. Uh, MC10 is a microcolor computer, uh, which is a, a related machine available from Tandy that uh, 
uh, has a mostly compatible basic with the cocoa anyway Jim uh, does a lot of basic programming little games and such he generally targets uh, uh, MC10 and then because of the relationship they often will end up on the cocoa as well uh, so he has a number of basic games available uh, he recently announced that he's done a, a port of a game from the Apple II called Lemonade Stand. Yeah, that's that's great. Uh, it looks like uh, in Lemonade Stand, you it's sort of a a little business. You're running a, a lemonade stand, and and you project sales and and that sort of thing. I used um, to have that same game on my uh, BBS years ago. Oh yeah, <laughs> very popular actually. So it's uh, cool to see uh, Jim out there. Um, I think him and his son actually work together on, on a lot of those games. So it's a, a great little activity for them, and um, we're happy to have it in our community. So another news item. Uh, not too long ago, someone asked about a, a book about the 6809 that they discovered uh, listing for on uh, Amazon called uh, Advanced 8-Bit Microprocessor MC6809. It's Software, Hardware, Architecture, and Interfacing Techniques uh, by... Uh, Robert Simpson and uh, Paramezran Ravindran. <laughs> Probably totally butchered that. <laughs> anyway, why is this interesting? Uh, just a 6809 book. Well, it's a 6809 book that was published in the, the late 90s, which is, of course, extremely late uh, for a book about uh, a microprocessor that dates from the late 70s. Anyway, uh, I mention it both because uh, someone discovered it uh, and because I happen to have a copy of that book. Uh, and uh, it's a pretty good little book. Um, it's a little bit academic, but uh, and it's not about the cocoa at all, but uh, it does describe the processor and how to program it and has a, a few other interesting uh, projects in there. Unfortunately, uh, the Amazon listing currently lists, uh, you can find them used starting at a starting price of $112.77. <laughs> That's a rare book. <laughs> I like the book. I don't know that I could recommend that anyone buy it at that price, but you might want to look around for it. Quite often uh, when you find an old book on Amazon with a price like that, it's just because it's so rarely sold that they just don't have good pricing information and someone will buy it. Anyway, that book is out there. You may want to look at it if you're a, a 6809 fan, uh, want to add it to your collection. It's something uh, for you to look for. Uh, along the same lines, there recently was an eBay auction for uh, a pair of books on assembly language programming that, that are, they, they are TS, uh, they are color computer specific. They're uh, assembly language programming for the TRS-80 color computer by Lawrence uh, Tepolt or Tepolt, and then uh, assembly language programming for the color, for the Coco 3, which is an addendum to the first book. They're blue paperback books. Um, I have a, a copy of each. Uh, they're pretty good books. They sold on eBay recently. The pair sold for $102.50. That, so, that's incredible. <laughs> that wasn't even... Uh, Offered to Canadians either. That was just yeah. a strict U.S. auction. Yeah, we were talking about that earlier. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate so many U.S. sellers do not make uh, their items available internationally. Yeah, uh, but what's amazing to see is that it, it went that high just in one country. Yeah, just in the U.S. So uh, in that re in uh, with that in perspective, maybe that uh, that hundred dollar price for that other book isn't so ridiculous. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it sounds other, like you've got an expensive library over there, John. <laughs> well, maybe I should look at liquidation. Uh, <laughs> anyway, 
those I would recommend those books if you find them. Maybe again, not at quite that price, um, but uh, they are. That is a good pair of books for uh, learning to program the Tandy Color Computer. Let's see. Uh, I'm going to plug my own blog here. Uh, I did well. Well, some some years back, I produced uh, a arcade style joystick for the Coco. Uh, to use when I'm showing uh, Farfall uh, to the public. Uh, sometimes I show it at um, events that are more oriented to the general public, like maker fairs, and uh, I just didn't want to subject my vintage uh, Tandy joysticks to the whims of the average eight-year-old coming by. <laughs> <laughs> so I produced a joystick out of uh, arcade uh, components that are they're tough and they're also replaceable if they happen to get broken <laughs> anyway they but so want to scare the kids away with those tandy joysticks <laughs> that's true too <laughs> but of course the tandy joysticks are um, what we call analog joysticks they produce a variable voltage to indicate um, exactly where uh, on each axis the joystick is pointing and the arcade components are digital so you need a little bit of an interfacing circuit to uh, to make that work um, and uh, at uh, actually at Neil's request, uh, some time back, I produced a uh, schematic for how I had done that, and uh, partly based on uh, how complimentary uh, Neil was about uh, the quality of my schematic, <laughs> I turned it into a blog post. So if you're interested in how to produce a, a digital joystick that works with a color computer, uh, you can find uh, that on my blog, my Retro Tinker blog. Uh, so that's uh, retro tinker r e t r o t i n k e r dot blogspot dot com. Um, I could uh, definitely vouch uh, not to cut in here, but uh, that schematic actually works very well, and it's very easy to follow. So yeah. even, uh, even for the novice, uh, it's a good project. So uh, uh, I hope uh, anyone that's interested will take a look, and I hope it find it useful. There are a couple other schematics out there. Some uh, can work with say the old. Uh, uh, Atari style joysticks and, and without requiring you to, to modify the joystick itself. And that's great. The, uh, doesn't help as much if you're dealing with, uh, you know, like I said, on, if you want to build something from arcade components or, or whatnot, basic schematic for a couple of conversions, including a, a Sega gamepad, And, and I know Neil has used it and, uh, it's a pretty good, uh, pretty simple solution. And, and, uh, it works pretty well. While I'm plugging blogs, <laughs> the reason why I have uh, my retro computing blogs is uh, directly related to my participation in uh, a twice a year event uh, known as the Retro Challenge. The uh, Retro Challenge runs uh, for uh, one month at a time, uh, twice a year, once in January, once in July. Uh, and so the uh, retro, retro Challenge event for July is uh, going to be starting and probably not long after this podcast becomes available. It's, uh, if you're not familiar with the Retro Challenge, uh, it's basically uh, a group of uh, geeks that kind of get together on the Internet uh, twice a year, and uh, people sort of propose their own uh, uh, projects to work on. And uh, as part of that process, they document their project, uh, usually with a blog, sometimes with uh, uh, videos on YouTube or, or whatever. And uh, it's a pretty cool uh, way to, to see what to, what's going on in the world, what other computers are out there, and what kind of cool things people can do. So if you haven't already heard of it, go check it out. Uh, it's available uh, retrochallenge.net. Uh, we will include a link in the show notes. 
final one final uh, news item uh, again this uh, uh, a conceit to me <laughs> there's another event out there in the co in the uh, retro computing world called Kansas Fest and Kansas Fest is literally a summer camp for retro geeks it is held uh, once a year at a um, university uh, Rockhurst University which is in uh, Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, the geeks get together and uh, actually live in the dorms for a week and do retro things, and I'm sure plenty of hilarity ensues. Uh, I've never been before, but by all accounts, it's a great event. Now, it is uh, specific or oriented towards the Apple II. That doesn't mean we can't talk them into the Tandy a little bit, you know? Well, exactly. So uh, it sounds like a cool event, and uh, you know, I think many of us that are involved in retrocomputing are interested in more than one kind of a retrocomputer. You know, I, I'm going to go. I did a uh, dabbled a bit with the uh, Apple II programming earlier this year, uh, porting Farfall uh, to the Apple II. So you know, I'm going to uh, go and uh, talk to them about that. I actually uh, pr proposed two uh, presentations uh, for Kansas Fest. One uh, entitled "What's a Coco," <laughs> so I introduce them to the Tandy Color Computer, and then the other entitled "What's Farfall," uh, which will introduce them to to uh, my lovely game. On uh, the organizers there have accepted both proposals, and so uh, we'll see if we can convert anyone at Kansas Fest uh, to uh, at least an interest in Farfall, and hopefully an interest in the Tandy Color Computer. And just for the record, you know, I am jealous. I can't make it to that event this year. Well, it, it uh, like I said, it's a it's a long running event. Uh, I think it's running uh, been running even longer than Cocoa Fest. Maybe I can talk a few of those folks uh, into visiting Cocoa Fest next next year. That'd be cool to get some cross pollination. Apparently, this year the uh, number of the people involved with Atari podcast have decided to crash uh, Kansas Fest as well. <laughs> so at least I won't be the only foreigner there. <laughs> and so. Uh, I, I think uh, we mentioned Rob from the uh, uh, Player Missile uh, podcast. I think he said he was going to be at Kansas Fest. And I know some of the guys from Antic are planning to be there as well. So if nothing else, we can form our own cabal. Of, uh... <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's all the news announcements. Well, that's all I've uh, decided to, to put in this podcast. There may have been a few more, but uh, we're just, uh, I think, <laughs> That's probably uh, enough of the podcast to news uh, for this month. After these messages, we'll be right back. Okay, but why Tandy Computers? In a word, quality. We do it all from custom designed semiconductors to the finished product. Tandy Business Computers are manufactured in our own USA plants. We test and retest and test again to ensure one of the highest standards of quality in the industry. And Radio Shack provides total service and support. I'm convinced. Tandy Computers at Radio Shack Computer Centers. In business, for business. Okay, so we've had uh, a bit of listener feedback already. Um, maybe not as much as we would like, but uh, hopefully now that we've got email addresses uh, and uh, uh, Facebook group and uh, those options available for people to talk to us, uh, maybe we'll get some more. In general, the feedback on the mailing list, I think, has been very positive uh, with a lot of well wishes. Uh, what do you think, Neil? Definitely. Yeah, it's, been, it's been great, and uh, I want to thank everybody for those well wishes and, and for listening to us because uh, if it wasn't for you guys, uh, we wouldn't really have a show at all. It would just be me and John talking to ourselves. 
Um, let's see. Uh, I did, uh, you know, didn't have any specific feedback emails or whatever, but I did uh, uh, snag a, a couple of comments from the list. Uh, one from Mike Rowan. I liked his comment. He said, uh, listening to the episode zero, uh, he said, uh, it's like a portable Cocoa Fest. Uh, it's hard to beat that. Uh, yeah, that was great. I, I saw that too. So um, if it's if it's anywhere near as enjoyable as Cocoa Fest, then uh, that is definitely high praise. Our Aussie friend, Mark McDougal, uh, I assume that's how I'm, I'm pronouncing that right. It could be Dougal, but probably Dougal. Mark McDougal. <laughs> Uh, he could, he had a little complaint. Uh, I think he, uh, he said he was, uh, listening to the com uh, to the, uh, episode zero as, uh, a, uh, hoping to have a little far fall drinking game where he'd, uh, drink every time we mentioned far fall. And he said he barely got drunk at all. <laughs> I think we let him down on that one. <laughs> <laughs> We've thrown a few more far fall mentions into this episode. So maybe that's helpful. But, that's uh, right. Uh, we have tried a bit. Uh, I, I did want to downplay uh, the Farfall discussions a bit. Uh, I'm sure they'll come out anyway. Uh, so, uh, don't want to make this a, an all Farfall all the time uh, podcast by any means. So, Mark, I, I hope you're uh, still listening, and uh, I hope you're still able to drive home. <laughs> Let's see. Al Hartman had uh, a quote. He said, I hope you'll get... Uh, Art Flexer, Dennis Kitts, and Marty Goodman, among others, for interviews for future podcasts. Uh, I think all of those are great suggestions. Uh, we might even add Al Hartman as a great interview for future podcasts. And uh, yeah, that would be uh, that'd be excellent to get him. Doubtless, uh, there are other people out there we would like to get. And uh, I think as the podcast continues, we'll find ways to include folks. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're desperate to be included, definitely contact us and we'll uh, try to scoot you to the top of the list. <laughs> okay, so we did have a, a couple of folks that, ex that expressed uh, some concern about our intro song being uh, too long. It's 45 seconds. So it probably is a bit on the long side, but it's 45 seconds. Uh, you know, <laughs> I might encourage you to just uh, use the uh, fast forward button on your uh, music player. Um <laughs> Uh, we do. Uh, we I think we're going to uh, make a few changes to the intro this time that maybe I'll, I'll uh, ameliorate that a bit. We didn't get too many complaints about that, and you got to admit, uh, you know, any song that's Coco specific from someone in the community, well, that's that's got to be worth listening to, don't you think? Definitely. <laughs> um, we do have a few people ask us about our commercial breaks um, we've put in there, so they're there. Well, we, we want something there to help with transitioning between different segments or to break up the the, uh, the length of the podcast a bit. I uh, expect there'll be uh, several more in this uh, episode, uh, and I think we're probably still collecting things. So, you know, silly things or, or things that are retro with references to Radio Shack or the color computer or probably just, you know, video games or the 80s in general. Anything like that. Um, yeah, a lot of nostalgia commercials. and uh, you know, So if we don't manage to find it, feel free to suggest it. And um, we're going to have them in there to, just to help break things up and add to the overall enjoyment. Anyway, I think that probably sums up uh, our listener feedback segment. So um, thanks for listening and, and uh, you know, keep the feedback coming. Um, we'll try to make... Uh, uh, any appropriate changes and uh, collect uh, as many accolades as you'd like to send. Yeah, we'd definitely like to hear from you. Yeah, definitely.
Lolo. I'm in love with the coco. I'm in love with the coco. Alright, Neil and I discussed things and thought that it would be a good idea to have a series of technical segments that introduce the architecture of the Tandy Color Computer. Since I'm a little more in tune with that sort of thing than Neil, I decided I'm going to handle these segments uh, solo and then uh, we can address any questions or whatever through uh, listener comments or, you know, whatever kind of other interactions we have in the podcast. But so the Coco is largely constructed of off the shelf components. And so I thought it would make sense to kind of do the first few initial segments on the major components themselves. And I thought it would be a good idea to start with the, the central processor, the CPU of the uh, Coco, which of course is the Motorola 6809. This is the heart of the machine, and not just in the sense that a CPU normally is the heart of the machine, but you know, whereas, say, the Atari 8-bits have um, the Antic chip or the Pokey chip uh, to handle graphics and sound, or, or the uh, Commodore 64 has the VIC-2 and the SID chip, um, you know, on the Coco, we don't have really any of that, uh, at least not in any meaningful sense. All we really have is the CPU, so our, our sound chip is the CPU. Um, our graphics chip is the uh, 6847, but anything neat that you want to do, like animation or any kind of uh, effects or whatever, has to be done by the 6809. So the 6809 really is the heart of the Coco, and in uh, in that sense, is the most important chip to to uh, you know talk about and understand. So start with a little bit of history. Um, some this is largely from. Wikipedia and from you know, some old magazine articles, uh, <laughs> which are actually linked from Wikipedia. So you can imagine how thoroughly this is researched. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, hopefully I won't uh, mess things up too much. The 6809 was designed uh, in Motorola's uh, 6800 microprocessor design group, which was in Austin, Texas. Uh, there were two main architects or co-architects of the chip. Uh, one was named Terry Ritter, and I think he was more of the nitty-gritty hardware guy. Uh, he's listed as a microcomponents expert and also in charge of the spec, so he may have been the senior co-architect is my impression, but I don't know if that's true for sure, so don't hold me to it. Uh, also listed was someone named Joel Boney uh, as a co-architect, and he seemed to have been responsible more for uh, inputs related to software, and, you know, how software affects the design and that sort of stuff. Interestingly, uh, uh, not really listed in these historical sources, but there is a, a fellow who was a member of the 6809 design team by the name of Don uh, Weiss. Maybe it's Weiss or Weiss. Anyway, I've forgotten uh, precisely how it's pronounced, but he did actually uh, appear at CocoFest several years ago, 2009, I believe, uh, to talk some about uh, of his adventures at Motorola on that team. Um, so 
that's my oh so subtle plug for why you should try to come to Cocoa Fest because neat things happen there. Anyway, there is an interesting little series of articles uh, produced by Terry Ritter and Joel Boney, or written by them, uh, that appeared in Byte Magazine uh, in January through March of 1979. And if you want to read those articles, uh, I'm sure uh, the Internet Archive can help you, or the Wikipedia entry for the 6809 actually has a link to a compendium compendium of those articles. Let the Radio Shack TRS-80 put the world of color computing into your home. Instant loading program packs turn any color TV into an exciting game arcade. And there's more. The color computer is an educational aid, a home management tool, and up-to-the-minute electronic information service. The programmable, expandable TRS-80 color computer from $399 only at Radio Shack, the biggest name in little computers. The 6809 saw a number of notable uses. Of course, it was a CPU and the Tandy color computer and the uh, Dragon... Uh, both Dragon Data and the Tano Dragon. We're, of course, we're already familiar with those. It was also used as the processor in the Vectrix arcade or home arcade uh, system. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Vectrix, uh, it was literally a little vector monitor system designed to play uh, games off of cartridges. So, just like any other number of games of that era, but like I said, it actually used a vector monitor, uh, which is a more like an oscilloscope uh, built into uh, the system rather than using a TV. Uh, I won't go into much detail here, but if you don't know about the Vectrix, you probably, and you're listening to this podcast, then you probably should go uh, Google it now. Another item that is said to use the 6809 is the, uh, quote, uh, Milton Bradley extension uh, for the TI-99-4A. I had never heard of this, but apparently it was a uh, game enhancement for the ti 99 that could make for better games. Uh, anyway, I guess the CPU used there was the 6809. I'm still learning about that system at this point. There's a, a uh, computer system from Fujitsu called the FM7. Heard about it over the years from time to time. I don't know a lot about it. Uh, I did previously uh, own an FM77AV, which is a related system that uses 6809. Anyway, it's just another computer in some ways was also used in the Commodore Super Pet. I think it maybe maybe the Super Pet booted up like a normal pet using the 6502, but could turn on the 6809 to do cool stuff. Similarly, there are 6809 uh, enhancement boards that you can plug into the Apple II to uh, to run uh, software written to take advantage of that. I think there was a Pascal system that could take advantage of that, and maybe some other stuff. Uh, the Acorn System 2, 3, and 4 machines apparently could have the 6809 as an alternative to the 6502. I uh, don't know a lot about those systems, but those were the uh, predecessor systems that led up to the Acorn Atom and, of course, the BBC Micro. Hitachi had a machine, as uh, I think it was formerly the MB6890. It was known as the Peach. Uh, it was available in Australia and, and other areas in the Pacific. Never had one. Sounds like a cool machine. You know, maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that uh, some other time. I know there's a Cocoa person named Daniel 
Daniel Campos uh, in Brazil that seems to have one. There are another number of SS50 bus systems uh, from makers like Gimmicks or SSB or Smoke Signal Broadcasting that uh, use the 6809. If you're not familiar with SS50, uh, you might be familiar with the S100 based systems, which were basically a box with slots, uh, and you just plug in different cards. Well, most of those systems uh, use the 8080 or Z80 processor. Uh, the SS50 was a similar kind of box. The uh, used a set of card edge connectors. Uh, used uh, are they Molex connectors? Um, Anyway, it's a, a pin. Uh, the pins were actually more like fingers uh, that would plug in, but uh, similar idea where cards would plug into a, a backplane system. Um, those originally were mostly 6800 machines, and then uh, over time they evolved into 6809 machines, uh, typically running uh, Flex uh, as their operating system. Anyway, uh, so. All of those so far have mostly been computers one way or another. There was a common set of systems using the 6809 from uh, an arcade manufacturer called Williams, and they were famous for a series of games including Defender, Joust, Robotron, uh, and several others. Um, those machines use the 6809 processor, uh, and uh, they're basically a common platform, which is a, kind of another interesting thing to learn about technically <laughs> for those so inclined. I will note uh, an interesting aside here is that those games were available uh, at one time through a company called Digital Eclipse as a set of emulation packages. It's called Williams Arcade Classics. Uh, the emulator on which those games were running uh, was actually written by uh, Jeff uh, Vavasour, or Vavasour, and Jeff if you're listening please tell me how to pronounce your name. And Jeff actually originally wrote the 6809 emulation code uh, as part of his uh, Coco emulator that was the, basically the original set of uh, the original emulator for the Coco available on DOS back in the 90s. Um, that's according to his own web page. Uh, so if you want to go and uh, check out, see if you can find uh, those games on eBay if that sounds interesting to you. The old Star Wars arcade game uh, used not one but two 6809s. So this is uh, the old classic vector game with the uh, uh, double pistol grip uh, controllers. They use the Force Luke. Uh, use the 6809 Luke. <laughs> actually had two CPUs, one for running the main game and video logic or whatever, and one that actually controlled the sounds. I don't know a lot about music synthesizers, but apparently uh, the 6809 was used in, in more than one, and particularly one called the Fairlight CMI, which seems to be a popular music synthesizer from back in the day. The Wikipedia page says they were used in some sort of traffic signal controllers. I imagine that 6809 would turn up in a number of industrial uses. Uh, in fact, I recently came across a listing on eBay for some kind of oven controller CPU board that uh, clearly had a 6809 on it. Oh, one other interesting use to note was that the 6809 was used in one of the original Macintosh prototypes. It was not actually used in any production Macintosh. That, of course, uh, used the uh, later 68,000 uh, 68, processor, but in some of the original prototypes, they apparently were considering use of the 6809. Okay, I'll go ahead and mention some operating systems that were commonly used for the 6809. Uh, one is called Flex. Flex, just 
you know, this is probably not fair to, to Flex, and if you're a big Flex fan, I'm sure you'll hate this description, but to me, Flex comes across a lot like a implementation of CPM designed for running on the 6800 processor and later the 6809 processor. Uh, it's a single person, a single person operating system or single user operating system, um, and has the same style of commands that were common on CPM or DOS. Uh, there was Flex was available for the Coco from uh, Frank Hogg, I guess. I think it's a nice system, but. It, Apparently it just never really caught hold on the Coco community, but like I said, many SS50 systems uh, ran with Flex. Of course, there's uh, OS9 or now Nitrous9 that's very commonly used in the Coco community, and this is a nice multitasking, multi-user uh, operating system. Uh, had preemptive multitasking uh, long before the Amiga was ever thought about. <laughs> you know, it's a cool little system. I'm sure we'll be talking more about that later. Uh, there's a couple of other operating systems out there floating around. Uh, there's one called Cubix, which was written by Dave Dunfield for his own use on his own custom 6809 machine back in the day. It is available out there open source. Uh, there's been some talk of porting it to the Coco, but I don't think anybody's working on it. Uh, so, if you want to be a hero, <laughs> help us out. And of course, uh, there's Alan Cox's project Fusix. Uh, there has been some work getting that on 6809. You know, so far I think the kernel may boot. I think they're missing a user land. Um, but, you know, who knows what the future holds? Well, good afternoon. And my name is Tony Pedraza, and I am the host of the annual last Chicago Cocoa Fest. We call it the last in quotes because we really don't know if we're going to have another one. All right, let's talk a bit more about the 6809 itself. The 6809 was conceived as a follow-on product to the preceding 6800 processor, which came out of the same group there at Motorola. And one of the main goals of the 6809 design was to reduce software cost. And there was kind of two major focuses here. One, which makes a lot of sense, I think, was support of high-level languages, uh, which, you know, even in uh, the late 70s, we're already facing a shortage of uh, programmers, especially programmers that could uh, operate at very low level. <laughs> so it makes sense to, um, to enable higher-level language support. Uh, another one uh, that was seen as a way to reduce software costs was actually to uh, enable uh, distribution of significant code in uh, ROMs, <laughs> which seems a little strange. I think they sort of missed the mark uh, in the, for the long term on that. But in order to enable running out of ROM, you needed to be able to, uh, one of the main things you needed to be able to enable uh, ease of producing uh, position-independent code. So that definitely uh, influenced the design of the 6809 and in many ways made it a nicer processor to program on and of course it enabled, along with enabling the distribution in ROMs, it also enabled uh, particularly the OS9 operating system. During their design phases uh, it's uh, apparent that they analyzed a lot of existing 6800 code uh, and used that analysis of that code uh, for prioritizing uh, what features 
to retain from uh, the CC800 and what to replace and, and you know which thing to put in and which thing to maybe de-emphasize. If you want more details of that, uh, you should definitely read the aforementioned series of articles from Byte in 1979. So, source code, the 6809 retains a high level of source code compatibility with the 6800. Now, some of that is actually aided by the assembler being smart enough uh, uh, to substitute uh, a 6809 instruction for a 6800 instruction, or possibly even a couple of instructions. And so, not every assembler is going to necessarily uh, support that. So, don't expect to be able to, to write something for the 6800 these days, uh, which is rare enough, I suppose, and then try to compile it directly on, or assemble it directly for the 6809, unless you just happen to have an assembler that is uh, supporting that sort of feature. Again, this is source code compatibility, not object code compatibility, so the actual machine code, the actual numbers that get stored in memory, uh, will not do the same thing running on a 6809 as they will on the 6800. Generally, this is not a problem, but <laughs> keep that in mind if you uh, have that as a goal. The uh, designers of 6809 definitely strove for consistency and uniformity in their instruction set, uh, and so you can see you know, all the the index and the stack registers can all uh, pretty much use all the same uh, addressing modes and and alike things act alike uh, for the most part. For the uh, those interested, the 6809 is produced using what's called random logic uh, and not microcoded. So on a microcoded CPU you would actually build a, a uh, basically a, a micro CPU and that would then run a small program embedded in the chip to then implement the CPU as you see it from the outside. Uh, Microcoded CPUs have the strength that if you do need to add features or change the way it works or that sort of thing, it's as easy as changing the program. Of course the program resides on the chip so it's not really that easy but it is a viable sort of design. And of course the alternative is this random logic design and the randomness. It's not really random. Somebody has to put the logic down but you know, in terms of how the design looks, it looks like somebody's cast a bunch of logic gates out into uh, the schematic and, and, you know, it's all here, there, and everywhere. But uh, there's advantages to both sets of design. The random logic design uh, tends to be, well, I'm not going to say too much. <laughs> so I don't have to answer a bunch of hate mail from double uh, E types. Anyway, 6809 is produced with a random logic style of design. There are two distinct versions of the 6809 that you'll see, um, the 6809 and the 6809E. Basically this refers to the way they're clocked. Uh, the 6809 without the E uh, can basically be connected straight to a, a crystal and um, produce its own uh, usable clock. There's a, a little more to it than that, but that's uh, basically true and then the 6809E has a, a clock input where the clock circuit is uh, exists off, off chip and um, can then is subject to possibly being modified and controlled differently and whatever. And in fact the 6809E is what is used in the color computer and um, 
the uh, the clock comes out of uh, the uh, the 6883 or the SAM chip and has the nice advantage that uh, it can be selected between two different clock speeds for different purposes. There was a second supplier for the 6809 uh, uh, Hitachi. Uh, they produced a part called the 6309, which boots up in compatible mode with the 6809. And later it was revealed that the 6309 actually had uh, a uh, what's called a native mode that actually contained uh, some sequences would execute faster in native mode, and the native mode provided um, more instructions and more registers. And actually running on the 6309's uh, native mode is what originally prompted the Nitrous 9 um, project uh, to take advantage of those features. Nitrous 9 has since been kind of uh, consumed both now the uh, pure 6809 uh, project and as well as uh, the 6309 native mode. Anyway, just an interesting note. In terms of the programming model of the 6809, there are two 16-bit index registers. Uh, these are designed to hold uh, memory addresses or, or pointers, as it might be called. Uh, and they can be used uh, in a number of the addressing modes to, say, to access memory, uh, or also can do some amount of 16-bit arithmetic using these registers. There are actually two stack registers. Uh, there's a the traditional S or, or system stack register, uh, which is used by the hardware for system or um, function calls. Uh, also, when uh, interrupts happen, that's where the uh, registers get stacked, that sort of thing. And then there's a, a U register, which is a user stack. And it basically works the same as the S register, so you can use the push and pull instructions and that sort of thing and use it for your own purposes. Uh, so. What those are kind of depends on you for your own program or traditionally the uh, fourth programming language has a concept of uh, the uh, second stack if I'm not mistaken. Anyway, also the U and S registers can be used in place of the X and Y registers in most addressing modes or most instructions. So essentially you have four registers that can hold 16-bit addresses. And again, you can do a certain amount of arithmetic on them as well using the load effective address instruction. There are two 8-bit accumulators, A and B. And then for a number of operations, they can be treated as a single 16-bit register called D. Um, these can be used for 16-bit loads and stores um, and addition and subtraction. Uh, you can't do every... ALU operation with the 16-bit register. So, for example, if you want to do a 16-bit shift, you have to do uh, uh, two 8-bit shifts, <laughs> and you got to take account to, to do it in the right order, of course, as well. There's an 8-bit register called DP or Direct Page. So, for uh, 6800 and 6502 users, or you're familiar with a zero page where you can uh, use a, a shorter addresses and to get uh, some quicker access to a 256 byte range of memory. Um, with the 6809 uh, you can move that around. You have to be on 256 byte page boundaries 
so that's why it's an 8-bit register but you can move that around based on your own convenience this can be used for different processes uh, in a, an operating system like OS 9 or if you have um, I know in, in uh, one program I move the direct page up into the IO range of the Coco so that all the IO accesses were a little bit faster it's a it's a nice piece of uh, flexibility for people to use of course there's a 16-bit program counter basically any processor is going to have to have that uh, sort of register the 6809 has the ability to do a number of addressing modes that are that use the program counter as an index um, so not every processor necessarily has that feature and it definitely is a nice feature of the 6809 so I'm going to hit a few features of the programming model here uh, I think I'll see I mentioned you can combine a and B into a 16-bit register called D uh, like I said there's two index registers um, that's pretty handy for copying uh, two arrays one to the other the extra stack register also can be used similarly can be used as another index register for that matter I mentioned the movable direct page uh, there is a hardware multiply instruction so you can multiply A times B and the result gets written into D so you can get a 16-bit result from multiplying two 8-bit numbers. Now there is no divide instruction. You don't need it as much, I think, as multiply, but you know, you can get around it in most cases. Sometimes uh, with the proper amount of scaling you might even get away with certain fixed values. Uh, you can multiply by uh, what's essentially a fractional number <laughs> and uh, so A times B and then take uh, the results. Um, from uh, from the D register, it's effectively like multiplying by a fraction. So there's a number of features in the programming model to support position independent code. I mentioned uh, addressing uh, that's uh, uh, an offset from the program counter. Being able to use different direct page values for different processes or or whatever. If the direct page is set up properly for your program, you have. Uh, a range of addresses that you don't need to know their actual absolute addresses just their virtual offset and uh, you know the extra index or stack registers can be used uh, to facilitate that read an OS 9 manual for <laughs> uh, for uh, more explicit examples let's see the 6809 supports two different uh, interrupt pins um, well, three if you count the NMI I guess but they, they have two different signals the traditional IRQ signal which when it happens it saves all the registers out onto the stack and then transfers to your interrupt handler um, then you also have what's called the fast IRQ handler and that one uh, just saves I guess the flags and the, and the program counter and then if you're the program that you execute uh, if it needs to use any of the other registers it has to save and restore them itself that can save a lot of time depending on what you're doing so it is a handy feature for performance let's see there are a lot of addressing modes available for the 6809 uh, you can index through X Y S or U so that's both index registers both stack pointers indexing including indirect uh, accesses uh, applies to most instructions so you're not limited to special instructions. You're also not limited to going through the direct page or zero page like you would be on the 6502. See, there's uh, got a note here. There's there's only an indexed indirect mode. There's no indirect index mode. And so if you're a 6502 user, you're probably thinking, well, that you picked the wrong one. 
<laughs> but again, we're not uh, the, the indexing is through 16-bit registers, not 8-bit registers, so you're not limited to the direct page or zero page. And I think you'll find that the the indexing on the 6809 is quite flexible and quite useful, and doesn't suffer the same kind of limitations that you see uh, with the 6502 and its 8-bit index registers. So you may think that it's uh, we've picked the wrong one, but uh, I think we've actually got the right one. <laughs> so. The push and pull instructions, uh, whereas on, on uh, say, the 6502, uh, you have a specific register for, you know, or specific instructions for pushing each register. Uh, the 6809, you, you basically uh, push and with a mask, and so push this set of registers out or, or pull them back in. And so it's pretty flexible. In fact, uh, it's quite often it's a small optimization in... Uh, 6809 to uh, skip the when you're doing a stack cleanup uh, and then you have a return from the subroutine typically in 6809 you won't use a separate RTS instruction you'll just include the the uh, the PC as one of the registers that you pull from the stack so that uh, automatically does the return this also can be used when you set up both the this the system stack and user stack properly and of course disable interrupts uh, you can use the push and pull uh, with a mask uh, for all the registers to do what is referred to as stack blasting and basically each register just adds one more cycle um, so but you don't have to do an instruction fetch uh, so you save a lot of cycles and you can move a lot of data through those uh, all those 16-bit index registers and the in the 16-bit um, uh, accumulator, and so you can uh, use that for implementing, say, a block move and uh, a block move operation. So that's a, a common little 6809 trick that uh, you may want to read up on. <laughs> See, the 6809 also has a couple of instructions related to um, timing. Uh, there's a CWAI, which is basically is a clear and wait instruction, and and uh, that if you know an interrupt's coming but it hasn't come yet, you can go ahead and do the the CWAI, and so then when the interrupt actually hits, you don't have to pay the um, the price of the register stacking at interrupt time. You can do it beforehand when you've got nothing else to do. So it's sort of like a optimizing for a real-time sort of operation. There's also the sync instruction, which is um, kind of like that. You don't wait, well, you don't do any register stacking. You still wait for the next interrupt signal, but uh, when this interrupt comes, then you just continue on to the next instruction. So CWAI is nice when you know there's an interrupt coming and you have an interrupt handler set up to run. You can go ahead and stack the registers and just, you know, proceed when the interrupt comes. Uh, sync, you don't actually end up calling the interrupt handler, so you can use it just for the timing aspect of uh, synchronizing your code to an external event, so typically something like an H uh, horizontal sync or vertical sync. The 6809 has provisions for doing uh, BCD or binary coded decimal math. This is a, just a way of, of using uh, bitwise values for storing uh, decimal values. It's quite uh, commonly handled. Uh, uh, like on the 6502, there's a special mode for handling BCD. It's uh, quite handy uh, when you're actually doing decimal math because when you do conversions between decimal numbers and binary numbers, sometimes you end up with imprecise results. On the 6809, instead of being a separate mode for BCD math, uh, basically there's an instruction that says go ahead and fix up after the last math operation uh, and turn it into a BCD operation. The last line I've got here, there's multiple uh, software interrupt instructions. And so... You can generate, uh, in software, as part of your program, you can generate 
an operation that acts a lot like a hardware interrupt where you go off through and execute a vectored uh, address and process stuff. That's how uh, services are typically uh, implemented in an operating system. But then there's reasons to, to put code like that inside of uh, other programs for just various reasons. <laughs> anyway, for whatever uh, reason, the 6809 actually has, I guess, three of these software interrupts. The usefulness, I don't know, might be debatable, but uh, you can keep one for your main program and one for the operating system. I'm not sure if you really need another one, but typically you might use one, say, for a software debugger. So I guess if you had the operating system and a software debugger, and then you still had a use for a software interrupt within your application there, you've got three different versions that you can use. Okay, a couple of final things. Uh, I kind of glossed over what it means to be an indexed addressing mode, uh, also an indirect addressing mode. So for an indexed addressing mode, basically what you're doing is composing the actual memory address based on the contents of a register and or an offset specified, you know, usually as a constant or in, perhaps in another register. So the 6809 supports uh, a pretty flexible variety of indexing options and you know as I indicated you can index based on the contents of the A or B register or the D register or a fixed constant. The constant can be encoded uh, in uh, several different links uh, so that you can you know use the shortest possible instruction sequence to specify whatever index offset you need. Uh, and again these uh, the indexable registers are the X and Y registers and also the user stack or U register and even the S register, the, the normal system stack. So that's all very flexible, uh, which is very nice when you're programming. You know, you can set up uh, pointers to walk through arrays or data structures. In uh, some cases, for example, in OS 9, you actually can use the U register as an offset to the data block of your program, uh, and so you don't have to know the actual addresses for your data. You just need another offset from the base of the data block, so that facilitates uh, position-independent programming. Anyway, so all the indexing together is a, a, a very nice feature of the 6809. Uh, one final bit that uh, don't want to leave out is uh, you actually can manipulate the index register values as part of the uh, whatever other operation you're executing that accesses memory. So you can do what's called a, a post increment or pre decrement for your addressing, and basically what it just says is you know take this index register and and bump it up one before you use it or uh, actually you can either go in steps of one or in steps of two and uh, which one is appropriate kind of depends on the exact operation you're using but so for example if you're walking through 16-bit values you bump it up by two instead of by one like I said you can go in either direction so you can actually use the post uh, uh, the pre-increment or pre-decrement and post-increment addressing to effectively turn the X and Y registers into um, stack registers as well. You can do with traditional stack style operations on them um, by just using these uh, 
increment or decrement options on the addressing when accessing specific data. Uh, so uh, it's, it's pretty common in, in program other processors when writing such programs to have an address that accesses memory, then have an address that that changes the pointer and then another loop around and have another access to memory and then another instruction to change the pointer. Uh, you can shorten that up a bit with a 6809. That's uh, very powerful and really nice feature. Also, I'm kind of glossed over uh, the term indirect. So indirect addressing basically means that you specify the address of a piece of memory and that that memory contains an actual address for what you finally want to do your operation on. This is, would commonly be referred to as a pointer uh, in when programming in C or some other languages. And again, it's a very powerful uh, programming technique, uh, widely used, and can be used for any number of operations, including uh, jumping through a function pointer or you know accessing a pointer as part of a data structure. Again, very important, very useful. Uh, so I didn't want to go without mentioning those features of the 6809 instruction set. Okay, well this segment has run a lot longer than I had anticipated. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, wrap up with some book recommendations for those who do want to learn more. There is, of course, 6809 Assembly Language Programming by Lance Leventhal and the corresponding Programming the 6809 by Rodney Zacks. Uh, if you're into programming retro computers at all, you probably have stumbled across these two authors. Uh, they seem to have each covered every processor of significance with similarly titled <laughs> books. <laughs> so uh, if you have a favorite between the two, pick that one's version of the 6809 and uh, check into it. Uh, one that is a little more Coco specific is uh, the TRS-80 Color Computer Assembly Language Programming uh, by William Barden Jr. Uh, this book uh, uses the uh, Coco's EdTASM cartridge uh, for all its programming exa examples and probably uh, has some detail on the Coco hardware as well for his examples. Bill Barden's writing is delightful and I would highly recommend this book to anyone who wants to learn more. And I can't help but mention uh, a book that was uh, recently a topic on a Facebook post. Um, book is titled Advanced 8-Bit Microprocessor MC6809. Uh, authors are Robert J. Simpson and uh, Ravindran Paramesran. Paramesran. I'm sure I'm messing that up, but uh, again, if you're listening, let me know and I'll uh, <laughs> try to correct it. Anyway, this book was written in like 1998, <laughs> or published in 98. Um, which is pretty late for a book on an 8-bit processor, okay, 97, which is pretty late for an eight, a book on an 8-bit processor that was, you know, released in the late 70s. Um, it's a pretty decent little book if you can find it. Uh, it's sort of academic, and of course it's, you know, the traditional starts with describing the binary number system or whatever, but it has a couple of cool projects in there. It's not Cocoa related at all. Um, but it does uh, describe the 6809 and some other related hardware. Anyway, uh, if you get a chance, you may want to check those out. Hopefully, uh, that has provided a decent overview of the 6809 and some of its features. I'm sure we could go into much greater depth uh, with uh, similarly much more time spent on it. 
Uh, if you are an Apple II person, especially if you're an Apple II GS person, I suspect you may have uh, heard some things that sounded rather familiar to you. The uh, Some of the architectural aspects of the 6809 seem very similar to the architectural aspects of the 65816, which was used in the Apple II GS and also the Super Nintendo system, and I'm not sure what else. I think the processors are complementary to one another or similar to one another. Not exactly the same, but I think they're comparable. Imagine uh, if the Apple II or 2 Plus or 2E had the 65816 from the Apple II GS. Imagine what a lovely machine that would be. And uh, I think you're right in the ballpark of, of where we had the Coco. So it's a great machine to, to use and program on. And uh, I hope someone listening to this podcast will be inspired to uh, give it a shot. And if so, you know, reach out, let us know what you're doing, and uh, I'd love to hear more. Okay, now I'll return to you to other parts of our podcast. Thanks. Get ready, player. One. Welcome to the Games Corner. This segment on the podcast will be dedicated to anything related to, well, you guessed it, Coco Video Games. I figured I would handle this section because John is not really a gamer, And that is okay, because he is busy creating the games. And after all, that really is more important. We can never have enough Coco game developers. Hint, hint, to anybody out there coding right now. Who knows, perhaps someday I will learn how to code 689 assembly myself, with John's encouragement, and will be able to contribute a game or two to the community. What I spend most of my time doing with the Coco these days is gaming. I consider myself to be a Coco gamer. Now I know the Coco is not as well known for video games, such as the Commodore 64, Apple II, or other platforms. It also doesn't have a huge library of games. However, despite its smaller library, and not being as popular as the other computers, the Coco does have something, and that is quality. There are lots of original game concepts, and ports or clones of other popular games. Even a lot of the clones are extremely well done, and in some cases are equal or better than the originals. So with all this game talk, it leads me to what I would like to discuss on this episode. And that is the Tandy TRS-80 Color Computer Games website. It was created and maintained by a fellow named L. Curtis Boyle. I hope I pronounced your name right, Curtis. If not, please feel free to contact me. I originally found this website when I got back into the Coco. It was one of the first sites I came across while Google searching. Well, that and Cloud9, of course. I had no idea what a treat I was in for when I stumbled into it. This site is absolutely massive. It has nearly every Coco game listed on it with full details of each one, including a personalized write-up, screenshots, and even direct downloads for many of the games. But wait, it gets even better. There are also alternative indexes for searching such as Author Index, Publisher Index, and my favorite, a Clone Index that shows you original arcade games and what the Coco clone equivalent would be. Curtis has also included interesting interviews, with game authors and email transcripts from game authors giving permission for public downloading. There are also disc collections you can download with packs of games from a particular publisher. There are also tips on getting certain games to load if they are known to be problematic or say when trying to load a Coco 1 game on a Coco 3. The site is clean, very organized, and doesn't have any annoying ads or flash graphics. It's direct and right to the point. You can visit this website by going to www dot l curtis dot com that's www dot l c u r t i s b o y l e 
www.kokogaming.com. I highly recommend checking it out. If you're into Coco Gaming or retro games in general, heck, even if you're not into gaming at all, it's worth checking out just for the history on it alone. I can't tell you how many countless hours I've spent reading up on different titles and author interviews. My only complaint with this website is that it's missing Farfall, my favorite game. It's only the hottest and latest Coco 1 and 2 game right now. No, I'm just joking around. Your website really is amazing. But if you would like to add Farfall to it, please get in touch with my favorite programmer, and he'd be more than happy to give you information on his game to add to your website. Special thanks goes to you, Curtis, for providing the Coco community with this amazing website. Keep up the great work on it. Oh, and did I forget to mention, he is Canadian. The following program could have been produced by a pair of donkeys wearing roller skates. Well, we have reached the end of episode one on the Coco Crew podcast. We actually ran over our time limit. Normally, we like to stick with keeping the show at the one hour mark. However, with so much going on in the Coco community these days, it's hard sticking to that. I would like to thank my host, John Linville, for providing that amazing 6809 segment and also giving me the chance to be a part of this podcast. I've always wanted to be able to offer something to the Coco community, and here's my chance. Again, I would like to also thank all of our listeners. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as John and I have putting it together. Please feel free to contact either John or myself if there are any comments or suggestions that you may have, whether that be something you'd like to see added to the show or if you'd like to be a part of a future episode yourself. Stay tuned for episode two, where John will be doing a segment on the VDG 6847. Until then, I will leave you with this ultra-smooth, brand-new Farfall theme song created by Mike Rowan. Enjoy, everyone, and remember, Coco forever.